from India's largest newsroom, I'm Arun George, and this is the Times of India podcast. In the 1980s, governments wanted to stop drug lords from funneling their wealth into legitimate investments. That's the reason it was decided that countries needed a law to stop money laundering. The International Financial Action Task Force or FATF suggested a law in 1989 and India moved its own Prevention of Money Laundering Act in 1998. Five years and some amendments later, the law was passed by parliament. Author and advocate on record in the Supreme Court, Chitranshul Sinha, says that while the law was meant to battle money laundering, it had one big requirement. A case of money laundering had to be linked to another case related to crime or terrorism. The thing is that there has to be a predicate offence. What the term the predicate offence means is it's a scheduled offence. And that scheduled offence is contained in the law. There's a schedule in the law. In the uh, in the statute, which contains certain offenses like cheating, forgery, fraud, things like that. And if you've committed one of those scheduled offenses, or you've accused of one of those of those scheduled offenses, and there is a probability of you having derived some monetary benefit out of it, it could be in cash or it could be in kind. That is termed as proceeds of crime from a scheduled offense means that you've committed the offence of money laundering. The offence of money laundering per se is not definitive. Uh, you cannot hold a proceed of crime. And basically the fundamental principle is that if anyone has derived some benefit, monetary benefit out of an offence, then the proceeds of that offence, the benefit that he's, he has derived, should reintegrate into the economy. He should not be permitted to take the benefit of that offence. In 2019, the Narendra Modi government made more amendments to the law to give the Enforcement Directorate more power. The amendments were moved in the Finance Bill and were passed in the Lok Sabha, where the government has a majority. Since the changes were part of the Finance Bill, they weren't debated by the Rajya Sabha, since the law fell into the category of a money bill. Multiple petitions were filed before the Supreme Court to challenge this decision. One set of petitions challenged the various powers given to the Enforcement Directorate or ED under the modified law. Another set of petitions challenged how the law had been passed. Chitranshul Sinha explains what the petitions challenging the modified law were objecting to. There were multiple petitions filed challenging the amendments. The amendments that they made the condition for bail very stringent. Earlier there was a judgment which says that it's unconstitutional. That is reversed now. Then uh, there were multiple uh, amendments. What they essentially did was that they allowed the special PMLA court to continue with the prosecution even if the predicate offence itself ceases to exist. Like let's say there's a closure by the police or it's quashed by a court. Even then the, the special court was permitted to go ahead with prosecution under PMLA. The powers to arrest are very stringent. The powers of search and seizure are very stringent. And there's almost no accountability under the law against ED officers. So all these were in challenge for their arbitrariness before the Supreme Court. But on Wednesday, the 27th of July, the Supreme Court upheld the new powers granted to the Enforcement Directorate by the modified law. 
so now ed officials can raid and search people even if it's not linked to any other criminal case ed officials can now take confessions from accused that can be used as evidence against them ed officials also don't have to share their version of an fir and ecir with the accused chitranshul sinha says there was just one tiny part of the judgment that he sees as a bright point what the supreme court has now said is that if the predicate offense goes then the prosecution of money laundering cannot continue that is what the supreme court has held yesterday which is one of the bright points of the judgment the supreme court verdict comes as opposition leaders have accused the government of misusing the investigating agency against them according to the government in the year 2021 to 22 the number of cases filed by the ed crossed 1000 for the first time in the agency's history however the agency's conviction record is abysmal with just 23 people convicted in the 5400 cases filed since its inception 17 years ago in today's episode we are speaking with chitranshul sinha about why the supreme court verdict is being criticized in various quarters he explains how the law can be used to harass an individual the problems with letting the agency use confessions as evidence and what the verdict means for the freedoms granted to us by the constitution Chancel the PMLA does not follow many principles that are considered the cornerstones of criminal law can you enlighten us on what these aspects are so the supreme court has now said that the criminal procedure code is not applicable to PMLA while the ed acts like the police which i am sure i don't need to say too much about it because we read about it every day they search they raid properties they search documents and all sorts of go through all sorts of information seize the properties attach properties but the supreme court has held that they are not police and since they are not police the provisions of crpc are not applicable and since they are not police then the ecir which is like a fir but the supreme court has held that the ecir is an internal document of the uh, ed so they are not required to disclose it to the accused all they required to do is at the time of arrest to provide the reasons for arrest these are things which sort of take away all sorts of accountability as far as the ed is concerned under pmla prosecutions don't these make bail <clears throat> almost nearly impossible uh i wouldn't say it's impossible but i would say it's very very difficult to get it what it requires essentially is a lot of judicial activism and when i say judicial activism then it requires our uh, sessions courts magistrates courts high courts to exercise that certain power that application of judicial mind to see that as far as the conditions imposed by the act are stringent they actually need to work with it and around it because the burden of proof is placed on the accused here to prove that there is no prima facie case of money laundering it's one of the twin uh, limbs of the of bail that the prosecution has to be heard and that the accused has to prove that the proceeds of crime were uh, that uh, the uh, properties attached or involved in the offense of money laundering by shifting this burden what they have essentially done is they have inverse the cardinal law of, uh, of criminal procedure which is that you are innocent until proven guilty but bail is a pre trial process uh, whether you are guilty or not can only be decided after trial 
what the law here does is that pre-trial itself says that no, the burden is on you to prove you're not guilty. At least show us a prima facie case that you're not guilty, then only you can get paid. So this is a draconian burden placed on an accused. Why is it a worry if the reason for a probe isn't related to a crime? Because the Supreme Court has said you can probe even if that offense doesn't exist. Technically, you could still enjoy the benefits of money laundering without a crime being, I mean, a scheduled crime being committed, right? Uh, So if it's not a scheduled crime, then it's not money money laundering. As per the act, as per me, I know the Supreme Court may disagree with me, but I do not think that should be the case. Because the very fundamental basis of a prosecution under PMLA is that a scheduled crime should be committed. What essentially happens is that when such an offense is alleged, a scheduled offense is alleged, the ED comes into play. Then they do their own inquiry, their own investigation. When it comes to the stage of uh, hearing on attachment and the special court complaint, the probe actually is not only restricted to what has been alleged in the first place in the FIR, it actually expands to whatever the ED finds during its inquiries or investigations. So even if the, the predicate offense is closed by the court or the police files a closure report, what the ED claims, they've also discovered other crime which has been committed for which there is no FIR to do. But essentially what they do is they go ahead and attach properties of even those uh, persons or entities who they suspect of having indulged in some sort of offense. So this is very worrisome because today there could be a simple case of cheating which the court may quash. But then they discover something else and you are being hounded for that even though no Scheduled offense is either registered against you or is made out against you. Attachment of property is a very simple thing for the ED to do. It just passes an order that this property is symbolically attached. Proving that the property is not proceed of crime or is not the value of proceed of crime is a monumental task for the person whose property is attached. I say this from experience because I handle these cases day in, day out, attachment cases. Attachment is under civil law, trials are under criminal law. Just to prove that something is not proceed of crime takes years and the appellate tribunal is not functioning. So a person has to jump through so many hoops just to prove that his property is his own. It's not any proceed of crime. It's it's just pure harassment in my opinion. I was reading somewhere that in around 5,400 PMLA cases in 17 years, there have been only 23 convictions. Yeah. Is, is this likely to change? Uh, I don't feel that it's likely to change. Cases are being registered left, right and center. The ED has become some, some sort of a super police today, where even uh, statements made to them are admissible in court, which is very, very surprising for uh, even for a lawyer who does not deal with PMLA cases. Because a, a police, which is a proper enforcement authority and investigating agencies, statements made, being made to them are not admissible in court. But the ED, which is made out of revenue officers, statements made to them can be self-incriminating and can be used against you. It's extremely, extremely unbelievable that this provision exists under law. Could you explain why that's problematic that your confession, if taken by an ED official, can be used against you? So under the CRPC, any confessional statement made to the police is not admissible. Admissible as evidence. 
even a statement made before the magistrate under CRPC under section 164 is not admissible in evidence as such. It can only be used to corroborate other evidence brought forward by the prosecution. So the standard set or the test for such evidence to be admissible is extremely high under the CRPC. But here the court says that CRPC is number one, not even applicable to proceedings under PMLA. So they are not bound by certain procedural guidelines and rules now. And number two, these statements can be taken by the ED. In fact, they can force you to make these statements. And if you don't do that, there can be a penalty imposed against you. And then the triple whammy is that it can be used against you in court. So this makes it extremely, extremely unusual, I would say. So why is the bar set so high? As in, what is the objective behind having the prosecution to rely on evidence other than a confession? Because you never know how that confession has been achieved. Whether it's been under duress, under coercion, confession can be done under some other considerations. Like, it's not unusual to find that a confession has been made by someone who's been promised some sort of consideration in exchange for that. The law and the constitution wants to prevent such situations. So that's why it's not sufficient. There has to be other corroborating evidence to prove the prosecution's case. The prosecution had to the prosecution has to work hard to get a conviction. The PMLA what essentially does is makes their life very easy. Another major factor in this judgment is the fact that the court has said that the ECIR, which is the ED's version of an FIR, doesn't have to be given to an accused. Why is that a matter of concern? As in, why does an accused even get the FIR? Uh, getting the FIR and knowing the contents of a, of, the, of a complaint against you is essential for you to defend yourself in court. Even when uh, you produce for remand and you have the FIR copy, you know the essential allegations which have been made against you. So at that stage itself, you can point out certain facts which would make you liable for bail or not to be sent for to police custody or judicial custody. But when you are arrested and the only thing that you are required to do under PMLA is to provide reasons for arrest and not essentially what is the exact complaint against you, what does the ECR, which is the predicate offense against you, it takes away that power to defend yourself. The ECR is not a very detailed document. But what it has is it has a summary of the allegation. It has a detail of the predicate offense in it. It has the name of the accused in it. And why they believe that there is a reason to prosecute under PML. So all those things should be made available. If a FIR is made available, then why, why is it there a difficulty in making the ECIR available? And we should be confident of the accusations that it is making. Can you explain the wisdom of the court when it says that the pristine rule that the burden of proof is on the prosecution to prove the guilt of the accused should not be taken as a fossilized doctrine? Because what they say is that there are reasons to believe that certain property is a proceed of crime or that a person has indulged in money laundering. So when that is being done after detailed investigation, so they have sufficient uh, evidence to show that some sort of uh, some sort of procedure of crime exists. They said that to disprove it is a job to be done now because the ED has already had detailed inquiries and investigations to reach this conclusion. How do you see this verdict then say changing how the ED has been working till now and what will we see from here on in terms of how the ED works? Nothing really changes. It's just that they are more empowered. 
today there is nothing pending for any court of law challenging those powers the only thing that's pending on this these questions today is that whether these amendments could have been made as a part of the finance act or not and whether these amendments can be made as part of a money bill is pending for a seven judge bench of the supreme court we don't know when that hearing will happen so i believe the ad will just feel more empowered i would say they have a more stronger mandate to continue doing what they are doing today today the ed with all due respect is being used as a enforcement arm of the government with no accountability and you see that cases are being filed against opposition uh, members mostly i do not recall anyone from the governing party being prosecuted under et or being raided by the et i think this will continue now and it will it may just become worse the fact that you said there's only one petition that's pending this judgment can't be challenged before a higher bench under the supreme court rules once a judgment has been delivered all you can do is file a review against it and uh, the review should only uh, is only to be restricted to the grounds that the very clear perversity or they've ignored some law or it was completely against some law and uh, i am an advocate on record of the supreme court and i can confidently say that 99.99% of the reviews are dismissed because reviews are heard in chambers they are not even heard in open court in chamber they decide that there may be some merit to the review then they, they it's held in open court and when a review is dismissed then the only thing that you can do is file a curative petition against that and again there are no almost zero chance of success there to very few such cases like the nas foundation case was actually overruled in uh, uh in review and uh, curative otherwise there's no further appeal left so only so, if the court of uh, if the supreme court in some other case feels later in time that there may be some merit in reopening the case then it has to be referred to a larger bench now to consider the correctness of the judgment so essentially we are stuck with this despite all that you say is wrong with it for the time being yes unless and until there's a larger bench uh, sometime in future maybe in near future or far future which mm-hmm. reexamines the correctness of the judgment you know you have increasingly in these arguments that are being made that it it restricts liberty the personal right to liberty what does this judgment mean for the overall right to liberty of average citizens it just takes away a lot of rights that you fundamentally have i will just put it very succinctly that you you granted some rights you guaranteed certain rights but when you have a statute like this has a implication on your personal liberty and then you are told by the statute that for to achieve that liberty the burden is on you to show that you are not guilty then it sort of takes away those constitutional guarantees Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at typodcast@timesinternet.in.